We are looking at three passages. The first, 2 Corinthians 5.17, is our jumping off place. That's like our little springboard. And so we're going to go bouncing off of 2 Corinthians 5.17 into some very practical teaching from four tiny verses about a little-known fella in the Bible because it shows us something about what it means to become a new creation in Christ Jesus. You've heard a lot of the stories about it. You've heard a lot of the teachings, and it kind of starts to sound like, wah, 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 you know, the Charlie Brown teacher. Uh, I've heard this before, and it all just goes in one ear and out the other. But I'm taking a little different approach today because I ran across a teaching from another pastor a few weeks ago, and I had never really seen this one guy as an illustration of what it means to be a new creation. So we're going to look at him today. Here's that jumping off place. Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. So we know that we are supposed to become new creations in Christ. We know that. If we've been to church at all, we've heard it, but the question is, how do we do that? This is a pair of lovely ladies that I actually filmed just this last August up on Mackinac Island. have seen some lovely butterflies flying all around them and it's a beautiful little enclosure where you get to walk in there and they have to dust you for prints to make sure you're not going to kill their butterflies and stuff but it was a lot of fun and you could see these gorgeous monarch butterflies so many of them all over the place it was a sort of a magical place to be but it starts out like this a little caterpillar and the question is what happens I know the Freeze family has been studying all about bugs and butterflies and caterpillars and things like that so probably we should have gotten Katrine to videotape for us her explanation because she probably knows it by heart but what happens to go from this to that well let me tell you a couple of things about it one of the things that's kind of gross that I found out by reading about it is that when it forms a cocoon it basically digests itself and almost everything about that caterpillar inside that cocoon just gets digested by these enzymes. It's kind of sick. And in that goo, fortunately, there are these things called imaginal discs, which are little groups of cells, which fortunately survive the digestive process. And they use the soup around it, which is real protein rich, to start developing into what becomes the wings and the thorax and the antennae and all the cool stuff that you can see here with the butterfly. So imagine that you're a caterpillar and all you have known is running around in the dirt and you're looking for leaves and you're crawling up on this thing and you're trying to dodge traffic and then you take a nap and you wake up and all of a sudden, whoa! I'm free. What are these things? Look, I'm airborne. This is great. I'm a butterfly. Aren't I beautiful? But there's a lot of stuff that goes into making that transformation happen, and I think it's pretty amazing. What I thought, because I had this theological bent, you know, you see something and instantly your, your brain goes to theology. I thought, <laughs> I know what that means to me. God can take my mess and turn it into something really beautiful. Amen. And I'm really grateful for that, and that's what happens when we become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Here's something kind of gross too, but I just thought it was interesting. You know where those beautiful colors come from? Those yellows and oranges? Crystallized waste. Ooh. 
If God can use crystallized waste to bring out those gorgeous colors on a monarch butterfly, don't you think he can take whatever mess we hand to him and say, God, I'm a mess, but I'm praying that you're going to just revive me and restore me into something that's really beautiful in the long run. We're a little bit like a caterpillar sometimes. We need to be transformed, but it takes a little bit longer for most of us to go through that process than most caterpillars go through to become a butterfly. Fortunately, we have this promise. This is one of my life verses. You've heard me say it often because I need it. I need this reminder that he who began that good work in me will carry it on to completion. Doesn't that make you feel good? Because there are some weeks when I feel like, wow, I sure didn't act very much like the new creation in Christ. I was more like a caterpillar this week than I was a butterfly. And so I need to know that God has not given up on me, that he's going to see it through all the way until I climb out of that cocoon and eventually he'll have that completed. James gives us this wonderful admonition. James, the half-brother of Christ, became the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. And he says, let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Have you ever thought about what your life is going to be like maybe in five years? We don't normally think about that. I don't know about you, but my day-to-day life gets so packed up with just living, just trying to remember what day to take the garbage out for Pete's sake, that I don't really think that far ahead. But I want you to think about it. What would your life look like five years from now? How about 10? Maybe 15 or 20. Now, I hope I'm still on this earth by 20 years from now. Uh, My parents both lived into their 80s, and so I'm hopeful that that might be the case for me, but I don't know. But I want to be complete. When I get to that part of my life, I'm really praying that I'm going to be much more like that monarch toward the end of my life than I was the caterpillar. And I want to be striving in that direction, letting perseverance finish its work. Luke 23, 50 through 53 is the passage I wanted to look at because this little known guy gives us a great illustration of somebody who has four qualities that I want us to look at today. He was good and upright. His name was Joseph. Now, there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, which means like the Sanhedrin, there were 70 members of very upstanding citizens on that council, the Jewish ruling council, and he was a good and upright man. Now, can you think even on one hand and count five people that you can think of right off the top of your head that you would describe as being good and upright? I don't know about you, but when I was pressed with that question, I had to do a little cogitating. I couldn't come up with people right off the top of my head. Most of the people I thought of were older than I am, and they were back in my history. But if you look around us today, and if you look at the news, it's hard to find people who would be described as good and upright, meaning that they're standing for righteousness. That's what I would certainly like to be known for at the end of my life. Read a book, a couple of books by Bob Goff. He's an interesting character. He was a lawyer for a bunch of years, and then he decided he wanted to start doing something other than winning all the time, and he wanted to do something that lasted. And so he started opening up schools for people who were disenfranchised because of war. He did something in Somalia and Iraq and a couple of different countries where there are people very displaced, and he's got schools for orphans. Just done some great work. But he said something that really struck me, and I had to think about it to see if it was true or not, to see if I agreed with it. He said... We're going to be known while we're alive on this planet. We're going to be known for our opinions, but we're going to be remembered for our love. And I thought, is that right or not? And so I started thinking, well, how do I compare that to Christ? Because he's my ultimate standard by which I want to measure everything. And you know what? He had some strong opinions. 
And he should have, because he was God incarnate. So obviously, if he says something, it's going to be a strong opinion, and he's always right. Because he's the embodiment of truth. He said, I am the truth. And so he had strong opinions, but you remember what we remember him for, even when we gather for communion. We remember him for his love. He could have argued his way into being right all the time, and yet he willingly gave up his life for us who were sinners so that we could be reconciled to God. We remember him for his love. So I'm thinking, okay, if I'm looking 5, 10, 15 years down the road, am I going to always be trying to prove that I'm right to everybody around me, or am I going to hopefully speak the truth, but to do so with love so that people will remember me for my love, not just that I had strong opinions? True story. Happened to our family. It's when our eldest was married. That's been something like 12 years ago now. I should remember these dates, but I'm the husband. I don't know. I'm the guy that I drive through to pick up a prescription at CVS, and they says, and can you give me your, your child's birth date, please? And I have to start going all the way. It's like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, which one? Okay, yeah, that, that's the one. I have them all stacked in right order, and if I don't start at the right place, I don't get there. But... I do remember that I have an oldest daughter and she got married. And at the reception, there was a guy, a young man, that we had sort of taken under our wing. We'd kind of been trying to mentor him a little bit. And he had been making some real progress. Unfortunately, he had struggled with some substance abuse and had made some tough life choices. And sometimes he had to pay some of the consequences for that. But at the moment, we felt like he was really on the right road, doing a great job. But he showed up at the reception and he was clearly impaired. And he kind of embarrassed himself, but more than that, I think he was probably embarrassing my wife and some of the people that knew my daughter by the way he was acting. Fortunately, he didn't stay the whole night. He stayed just long enough to kind of offer his congratulations, and then he took off. But he did some things that really hurt our family. Some of them happened even after that night. And when you've invested your life in somebody, you care. I mean, you really care about people and you want them to do well. You want them to succeed and you're trying to love them and you're trying to tell them the truth. And so he really hurt our family in a big way. And I struggled. I, I'm saying this because I'm being totally candid with you. I really struggled with forgiving that guy. And it took me probably five, six months of wrestling through that praying. I'd be reading scriptures. The Holy Spirit would keep reminding me. Some of us speak the language of the whisper and some of us speak the language of the two by four up the side of the head. And sometimes God would give me the two by four and I would hear the same scripture three times in the same day from three different people. And I would say, okay, I hear you, Lord. I understand now. I need to start forgiving this guy because that's a part of becoming the butterfly. It's part of becoming the new creature in Christ. Well, I was praying, God, give me an opportunity to start acting on what I know I should be doing because I'm having a hard time with this. And God provided that opportunity because that guy showed up at one of our church services and just walked over and gave me a big hug. And I felt all that stuff just melt away because I knew that what God was asking me to do in that moment was to love this guy. And I needed to offer him forgiveness. And he asked me for it. He said, please forgive me. I know I really embarrassed your family. And I said, it's forgiven. I'm going to forget it. We're not going to, I just brought it up again. So I guess, but I say that in a redemptive fashion. I didn't say that to embarrass anybody. I was saying it to say, I really hadn't thought about it that much because he's done so well since that time. He's been walking with the Lord. He's walked through a couple of real serious trials, neither of which derailed him. He's still on the straight and narrow, and he's still clean and sober. 
And I'm so grateful to see how God has started to work him into that butterfly too. But I tell you what, it was this old guy that needed to hear from God because I was afraid I wasn't going to act like the new creation in Christ that I know I should be because of the way I was not wanting to forgive him. Secondly, Joseph from Arimathea. I, I made this connection. You know how you see things and they should pop right in your brain immediately? But it's taken me all this time to realize Aramaic, the language, is from that area, the region in Mesopotamia, and Arimathea, same. That's where this language was born. It was in that region of, I thought, <laughs> how simple is that? So anyway, he probably spoke Aramaic. Joseph from Arimathea stood for what was right. Look what the scripture says about him. Joseph, who was good and upright, had not consented to their decision and action. Which decision? Which action? Crucifying Jesus Christ. This guy stood against that. Now, he's the only guy in scripture that we read about who stood against all the rest of those 70 people. So he was one out of 70, we think. Now, the Bible doesn't give us any specifics. If there were a minority of guys there, maybe there was a small faction but we don't know that for sure. If so, I'm sure it was a small minority. But even if it was, it took courage. What did it take for that guy? Man, it took guts. I would ask myself, do I have that kind of guts? Do you have the kind of guts that it stand, to stand against something that you know is wrong, even though you're in the minority, and to say, I know what your decision is, but I disagree with it because it's just the wrong decision, and I just want to register that. I want this to go on the record. Man, that takes courage, doesn't it? And that's what he did. Standing for right while still showing love. That happened a couple of different times, including with this young man. There were some times when we'd have these heart-to-heart -heart talks. And I wanted to be known for my love for him, but there were also some truthful, honest, difficult conversations that we had to have. And sometimes I had to be honest enough to say, you know I love you. And because I do, I have to share this quite honestly. This is wrong. And I think you're aware of that, and we want to help you pick a different route. We want to have an if-then approach so that when God's Holy Spirit speaks to you, you're going to start going down this road, and you have a new habit that you're developing. So that's why I'm telling you the truth the way I am. And I think he accepted it well. But it's hard to stand for right. Because I don't know about you, but so many of us, especially in, in the nice people club, you know, we were all raised to be nice to people and not to ruffle feathers and things like that. We don't want to say something that's going to create conflict. And so sometimes we just don't stand for what's right. And we need to learn how to do that, just like Joseph did. He was a, an upstanding citizen, but he also stood for what was right. Here's some things that I think we need to do a refresher course. Now, I shared this just a few weeks ago, some of these things. But when I started thinking about all the watershed moments of my own spiritual growth and in some of the biographies of missionaries and other people that have become huge in my mind as new creations in Christ, this always comes up. You look at anything in the New Testament, you keep finding how the Apostle Paul has to keep writing about forgiveness. So this is my primer course. This is my real two-minute, real fast version, PowerPoint version of things related to forgiveness because it's a part of becoming that butterfly. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you're condoning poor behavior. You can forgive somebody without saying, hey, I think sin is okay. I think you're going off and doing the wrong thing. It's just fine. That's not what forgiveness is about. Forgiveness is a gift we give ourselves. It's really for us. That's the one who benefits most from forgiveness. Now, I can tell uh, my son when I was 
trying to help train him up in the ways he should go when he had some wayward years, I could tell him some things and say, you know that I disagree with this decision. You know that. But you're old enough now to start making your own decisions. And so nothing will ever change my love for you. I'm going to love you forever. But this decision could really end badly for you. And so I just want to go on record as saying, if you go down this road, it's not going to end well for you. See, that's love without condoning bad behavior. See what I'm saying? But I can still forgive him even when he messed up. Forgiveness is a gift we give ourselves. When you forgive, you release yourself from the bondage of needing to be vindicated. There's something so strong in all of us that just wants that apology. We want somebody else to stand up and say, I hurt you and I realize it and I'm sorry. And sometimes that's not going to come. Which means we still need to forgive because we need to let go of that sense of needing to be vindicated when sometimes God's the one who's going to do the ultimate judgment. He's going to vindicate, but it might not happen on earth. We cannot forgive somebody. Man, God has been beating me up over this for the last, I don't know, 45, 50 years. We cannot forgive somebody if we think they are beneath us. Romans 3, 23. How many of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory? All of us. Paul even says in a different passage too, I think it was in Corinthians, uh, letters to the Corinthians, when he said, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. And we shouldn't. And when I realize that if I'm trying to hold somebody else accountable for Uh, vindicating me, I somehow feel like I've elevated myself above them and that they are still beneath me as long as I hold them in an unforgiven state. And what I need to say is, wait a minute, God, you've forgiven me so many things. I need to be willing to forgive as you have forgiven me. And so we're level at the foot of the cross. Forgiveness does not equal trust. It's another thing. We don't just have a, a, a kid that comes up to us and says, well, I said I'm sorry. Well, I know, you said you're sorry, so that wipes it clean, right? So now you can go back, and I'm still going to trust you just as much today as I did yesterday when you stole the car and took it out and wrecked it. You know, no, no. I've watched families get torn apart because they kept providing too much trust when a child had broken that trust instead of saying, I love you, and because I do, I have forgiven you, and I'm going to let you earn your way back into trust again. That's something that's so vital. Forgiveness does not equal trust. So we can forgive somebody, but we wouldn't put them back in that same position of authority or responsibility until they've earned the right to be there. And then, forgiveness restores our ability to start looking through the compassionate lenses that God gives us when he gives us the Holy Spirit as he's starting to transform us into the butterfly. The whole time I'm seeking vindication or vengeance, I'm looking through the the lens of, I want to get even. But when God starts to show me what it means to forgive, I start saying, you know, God loves that person enough to die for them. I want to learn how to be compassionate toward them and to pray for them. Because Jesus even tells us, pray for your enemies. Forgiveness displays Christ-like behavior to others. What did he say on the cross? He's dying and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And then forgiveness opens the door to reconciliation, but... It doesn't guarantee it. Just because I've forgiven somebody doesn't mean they're going to go, oh, I was just waiting for that. Thanks. Let's get reconciled. And all is well. Very often, that's not the case. Why? Because we live in a sin-marred world. And people have selfish, sinful tendencies. We all do. 
And so sometimes they're just not gonna get to that point where they recognize they need to let go of some stuff too because they need to be transformed into that butterfly as well. So it opens the door to reconciliation, but if we're forgiving with the expectation of reconciliation, we might be disappointed. So it's good for us to know, I'm gonna forgive whether or not they ever reconcile. I'm still gonna forgive. The point of forgiveness is this, that I who have been wronged am letting go of how I'm letting that other person affect me. I'm letting that go because I have given them too much power to affect me negatively because I've just gotten into my own head and I keep dwelling on stuff that I cannot change. And if I can't change them, I have to trust the Holy Spirit to do the change and I'm just gonna love them and forgive them and keep looking for opportunities to build into their life as God allows me to do so. And sometimes I need to plant my tree a little farther from their tree so that we can both blossom. And that's okay. Doesn't mean I don't love you. But some people I've had to just kind of move a little farther apart and say, they're not going to reconcile. And I have to allow them to make their choices. I'm going to choose to let them make their choices, but I'm going to still love them even if it's a little more of a distance right now. Here's a great prayer. And it's shared by a lot of people who have been through addiction uh, treatments. It's from AA. And I think there's some wisdom in here. Now you can see where it falls in the prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. Don't we have a hard time accepting those things that we can't change? The courage to change the things I can, like Joseph did by standing against the counsel, and the wisdom to know the difference. Because what the enemy loves for us to do is to get caught up in trying to fix the stuff that's unfixable. And we keep beating our heads against a brick wall trying to change somebody who's not ready to change yet. Sometimes when you say, oh, wait a minute, I can't do that. So I have to stop giving all my time and energy, emotional energy, to doing what I can't do. And I need to pray for them and move on and do the things that God wants me to do that is productive and that's positive. Sometimes we need a cocoon. And some cocoons last longer than others. That's okay. God does some of his best work in cocoons. When he takes the mess of our lives and we feel like our insides are mush because of the stuff that's going on and yet he's gonna turn us eventually into that beautiful butterfly. Another thing that was good about Joseph from Arimathea, he had an eternal perspective. It says that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now this was a guy who was waiting for the kingdom of God long before he actually met Jesus. So when he met Jesus, this was a fulfillment of a lot of stuff that he had already been planning on. He was looking much farther down the road than just day-to-day. Do we ever get mired in just the day-to-day life stuff? Things that are not going to matter 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now? My dad used to ask a good question. If I'd start to stew over something that he could tell it was probably not going to do any good for anybody, he would say, son, is that going to matter 100 years from now? And I used to get so mad that he would ask that. And now I look back at it and think, that's a pretty good question. That's pretty wise. Is this thing that I'm giving so much energy to, is it going to really matter 100 years from now? Because if not, I need to start focusing on that which will matter 100 years from now. I need to start focusing on my eternal perspective because it changes how much energy I give to certain things here on the planet. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because that's where faith lies. 
Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That's walking by faith and not by sight. That's what an eternal perspective does for us. And fourthly, Joseph demonstrated love for Jesus even after Jesus' death. This is another aspect of his standing for what was right. Not only did he stand against the council, the Sanhedrin, but after Jesus had passed away, he really took a risk. And he went with another fellow to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus so that they could take him down, which was an unclean thing to do according to the Jewish customs. Normally it was menial task. Sorry, ladies, but that's something that they made the women do. But he loved Jesus enough to do that. And then he even put Jesus in his own family tomb. Why would he do that? Because he was extravagantly demonstrating love to Jesus because Jesus had extravagantly loved Joseph. So pretty good qualities, wouldn't you say? Isn't that the kind of thing that if I was going to be a new creature in Christ, if somebody said at the end of my life, man, that guy was good and upright. He stood against wrong, but he stood for what was right. He had an eternal perspective. He loved Jesus with all of his heart and soul and mind. I'd love for people to be able to say that about me toward the end of my life. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. He took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, placed it in a tomb, cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. And he did that because of his extravagant love for Jesus. This person is Tara Turner. It was purposefully twisted in a funny fashion like that. We met Tara back in Tecumseh where we used to live before we moved to Milan. And she used to be... um, working in a downtown business. That's where we came in contact with her often. And we developed a friendship over the years. And she showed up on our porch one evening in tears because she knew Joy was a good listener. And she said, Joy, I just need somebody to talk to. Can I come in? And Joy said, of course, come on in and had a good long conversation. And that started a habit of many long conversations. Tara was going through some stuff. And she went through a cocoon stage of her life, and the cocoon turned out to be much longer than she expected it to be. I asked for Tara's permission to share something that she shared recently because it just is a perfect illustration of what I've been talking about to show what it means to be transformed into a new creation in Christ. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's riveting. And I have to read it because I want it to be straight from her words. This is what she wrote. As I was going through some belongings not too long ago, I came across a journal. The first entry was in May of 1998. The last was from January of 2000. I was only 23 at the time I had started writing in that journal. Since then, 20 years had passed. 20. When I started reading, I immediately felt embarrassed, and I was so grateful that it was not in the hands of somebody else. But as I continued through the pages, something happened. I went from being embarrassed to feeling really sad and sorry for the young lady that wrote those entries in that journal. Searching for something she felt would never be attainable, feeling lost and lonely, desperately wanting to feel loved, to feel wanted. As I read, I watched the same patterns appearing again and again in this young lady's life. She felt un unloved and rejected, and so she went through cycles of depression and anger and cocoons. She was chasing after something that no man could ever satisfy, and yet this young lady kept trying to find love with men, and she had absolutely no idea that no human being could fix what was broken in her life. 
I had to smile a few times as I read, though, because even then, when I was about as far from God in a relationship with him as I would ever be, even then, I noticed little hints that God was caring for me and pursuing me. I just didn't see it readily at the time. I would really like to tell you that quite some time ago, that broken young woman realized the error of her ways. Unfortunately, I can't. It took another 15 years of heartache, of repeating the same cycles of depression, anger, unhealthy patterns, and dysfunctional relationships before a lasting change started to take place. It began with an urge, literally out of nowhere, to download a Bible app so I could start doing daily Bible readings. As with all new things, it was kind of hit and miss at first. I would try to get engaged, but I failed as many times as I succeeded. Thankfully, because God is incredible with his grace, he continued to probe at my tender heart, giving me a desire to find a church again. It took more than six months for me to be willing to even put much effort into that. And thanks to some friends who didn't give up because they kept inviting me, I kept telling them no, but finally I said, yeah, I, I think I will go with you this time. And then she told me, because I asked her some questions after I read this, I said, what happened to get you back in church? She said, friends. <laughs> it was people that continued to show love to me even long after I had stopped being around them, and they, they just didn't give up. And so I went with them. And she said it felt kind of foreign, because she had been to a kind of a liturgical church where they do things pretty much the same way each time. And she said, this church was a little bit of a wig out for me when I first got there, but now I understand what they're doing and it makes a lot of sense and I love it. She said, I've come to understand that God will not enter unless invited. And he certainly won't drag you kicking and screaming into his love. You have to make the choice not to pursue him, but to let him openly pursue, pursue you and to accept the gift he so desperately wants to give you. And then I like what she says next. Once you accept him, the roles kind of reverse, or at least it did in my life, because then you become hungry for him, for what he gives so freely. And then you do actually start pursuing him too. I found that to be true with many other people as well. And then she said, it was in the fall of 2013 when I found a church I could call home. It was where my relationship with God finally really began. And again, I would like to tell you that there was an instant reversal of patterns that life became joyous and easy instantaneously. She said, no, nah, life will never be easy and it will never be trouble-free and change does not happen overnight. The process of transformation for me started five years ago and while God has put me in sort of an accelerated learning path, this last 18 months especially, have been filled with some pretty intense growth. But I'm starting to see some evidence that he's still really working in my life. Because of God's grace, because of his unconditional love for me, because of his desire for me to succeed and to live the life he planned for me, not the one I was trying to choose for myself, I'm more eager to keep pursuing him and the life that he has in store for me. This picture was taken as she was a volunteer on an archaeological dig in Israel earlier this year. And when we started swapping Israel stories, because you sent us to Israel last March, we started seeing a lot of really neat parallels. And we're going to try to hook up with Tara, because she lives not too terribly far from our kids in South Carolina. She's in North Carolina. And Tara is just growing by leaps and bounds. And I read the posts that she is posting now, and she's way over here in butterfly land. 
And she was way back over here in the cocoon for 40-something years. And you could just see God's work so evident in Tara's life. So let me ask you, as you start contemplating your own life and where you are, are people going to say this about you one day? Wow, that was a good and upright person. She was a, a woman of noble character. She loved Christ more than anything else in her world. Or he was such a noble guy that he would always make the right decision, even if it meant standing against other people because they were wrong. Do you have an eternal perspective or do you get bogged down with the day-to-day? Would you like for people to be able to say that, to say, yeah, they were not so heavenly that they were of no earthly good. They were actually of earthly good, but they had a great perspective because they knew what it was to walk by faith. And that person had such an obvious love for Jesus. Wouldn't that be nice for people to be able to say that about us? They can, because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I so desire to be known for these kinds of attributes, just like Joseph from Arimathea. And I realize that I still have a lot of cocoons between now and the time I go to heaven. And I'm so grateful that you allow those times because you still keep that work of transformation alive. I'm asking that you'd start right in my own heart and life, that you would help me to learn how to be compassionate toward people who have hurt me, to forgive for all the right reasons, not to condone sin, but to let go of my strong need to be vindicated. And I pray that one day, all of us in this room could look back and see the evidence that you were so strongly pursuing us with your great love that you caught us and then we started pursuing you with everything we had. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.